are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. We're going to read Third John together. The Elder, to my dear friend Gaius, who I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in the manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Thank you, Judy, for reading. Well, there it is, Third John. By the way, what is the shortest book of the Bible? It's that one, the one we just read. Third John. 219 words. And I'm reminded that sometimes you don't need many words to say something very important. Think about these examples. I do. Or how about this? Mayday. Hopefully you're not saying mayday after you say I do. (laughs) A third example. You're hired. Have you heard those words before? It's pretty special. On a driver's license test, I know we've had some of our students taking their tests now, driving all over Minnesota to find a time slot to take their driver's test, and then stamped across the top, passed. Or on a college application, accepted. Or like the doctor said to Esther and I once, it's twins. Brevity is a powerful thing. It can accent a statement like an exclamation point at the end of a sentence. Brevity drives it home. And so it is with 3 John. It comes at the end of John's three letters, the shortest book of the whole Bible, and an oft-neglected little letter of the New Testament, much like 2 John that we read last week. And I'm so glad we can spend time here today. And as I was studying this passage, I thought it's good for us to check ourselves and ask something like this. If all of Scripture is God-breathed, then why did God desire for 3 John to be in the Bible? 
Ever wonder that? We don't ask that question about the Psalms or the Gospel of John or whatever it might be. But why did God do this? Why does he want us to have this book of the Bible, just 219 words long? Because it's not like what we have here is some little appendix to more substantial parts of the Bible. That's not our view. It's here for a reason. And there's something that God wants us to know so that we can know him better and follow his ways and live well. My paper file where I stash sermons then over the years, it's empty. This will be the first one this Sunday as I drop in Third John. So I'm so glad we have this time and we don't want to miss what's here. We're going to look at the passage and just kind of highlight some of the sentences, not go line by line, but the letter begins by listing the author, the elder, and this is John the Apostle. John who wrote the gospel. He's the youngest of the 12 disciples. He's the one often referred to in the gospel of John as the beloved disciple. That does not mean, by the way, that he was Jesus' favorite. It's simply a term of endearment. Probably like the baby in a family is often treated over the years. If you just ask the baby at our house, he's got every one of us wrapped around his little finger. So John the Apostle is the writer, and he's now much older than those earlier years in the gospel. He's an old man now, the elder, and he's writing, it says, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. A couple things about this line. Gaius, first of all, was a very common name at the time. So we probably have four different Gaiuses in the New Testament. We're not sure, is he one of those or a new one altogether? But John clearly cared for him deeply. I mean, when you write, my dear friend, that says something. You can tell by the tone of this letter, they've done a lot of life together. They've covered some years. And then notice the dependent clause, whom I love in the truth. It's a striking phrase, isn't it? And that doesn't seem like ordinary language. Love is often for us in American English, this mushy kind of word we associate with a sappy kind of affection, or maybe more nobly as a virtue, this lofty ideal. But there's something here that John is saying that seems solid and grounded, loving someone in the truth. And some of you know this from your own friendships that are rooted in Christ. I have friends from all walks of life. i got to remind my kids sometimes, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I know only church people. But among many good and meaningful relationships of all different kinds, I will tell you, this resonates with some of you, there's something fundamentally different about a relationship that flows out of a mutual affection for Christ. One of my closest friends is a goofy Russian-German named Marcus. I met him 20 years ago when I was living overseas. We were in each other's weddings. I was there when he and his wife thought they were having a baby girl, and then they came home from the hospital with a baby boy, shell-shocked. So shell-shocked, I named their son because they didn't know what to do. They had everything lined up. Marcus is one of the world's biggest Minnesota Vikings fans, even though he's from a country where they hardly know what a football is. And so we'll text each other during games. He's always staying up late. Now he's keeping his kids up late because of the time change, and he's watching our beloved football team, our inevitably disappointing football team, it seems. (laughs) 
Marcus is also a pastor, by the way. He's a pastor of a Baptist church in Germany. But that and none of those other things are what's actually anchored our friendship over the years. It is the bond that we share in Christ. That's it. There's a spiritual connection in the Lord that is stronger than steel. So I hope that you have those friendships across these tables. I hope you have one, two, three people in your life, maybe it's your Y group, where you are knit together in a way that goes beyond words. At a minimum here, if you're part of this church family, I want to tell you, if you come here and you feel disconnected, then we're not getting something right. So I encourage you to come and talk to me, and I'll connect you to two or three others. I'll connect you to a Y group that will welcome you and befriend you and do life with you, just like Gaius and John. Verses 2 to 4. Let's move on to this now opening paragraph of the letter. And this first line is interesting. Some scholars believe that perhaps Gaius struggled with some kind of illness which prompted John to write as he did. So verse 2 says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. I wonder if you have ever known someone as I have whose body was falling apart, who was racked with pain, or beset by illness, and yet their soul was getting along well. A few names come to my mind, past and present, who have been part of this church family. A few names come to mind. And the thing about it is, when you get a living example in front of you like this, you see it because it's not automatic. It doesn't come easy, and it's not something that everyone in the world is able to do. And that's what makes it remarkable. My grandpa, over the 30-some-odd years that I knew him before he passed, he taught me a lot about how to live. But in those last three weeks, he also taught me how to die. Exactly what was going on with Gaius, we don't know. And exactly what's going on with you, I don't necessarily know. I do know that some of you might be in a tough spot right now. I know that there are those in our church family who are facing something where your body is falling apart, some having to watch on live stream because they can't get here physically, where nine out of ten things in your life you cannot control right now. But that tenth one, that one's yours. And you get to stare illness or death right in the face and say, it is well with my soul. Well, John continues to affirm and encourage him. Verse 3, let's look at that one. It says, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth. Here's that word again, truth. And we're not done with it. It's going to keep popping up. I underlined it several times in the letter. They testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. And then this line, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, John's not speaking here, as as you likely know, of literal children. He's talking about those he's nurtured in the faith. Spiritual sons and daughters. He's an old man now. He's fading from the scene. And he's saying his greatest joy is to see younger generations that are fully committed to following Christ. And I love the connection in all of 3 John between 
truth and joy. That these two things go together. Because sometimes truth is caricatured in a religious context as being hard and cold and heavy-handed. Somebody who talks about truth is rigid and judgmental. People who emphasize truth are always talking about right doctrine and immorality and the flagrant sins of our culture. That's at least the caricature, the picture that gets painted. And though I know, as well as you do, you can find folks who will fit that picture. That's not what we see in the Bible. And that is, I think, a straw man of Christianity, probably propped up by a world that, one, positively calls out hypocrisy, but, two, is threatened by the gospel. The real deal, though, and we see it in 3 John, is that truth is truth. It's not compromised or diluted or kowtowing to popular opinion. And yet, walking in the truth is also lighthearted and life-giving. It frees you up to be gracious toward people. And it's joyful. The truth of God has been given to you and I so that our human life may flourish and lead us to greater joy. So here's my first takeaway for us. Our first application from 3 John. Number one, walk in the truth. We'll have four of these today. And I realize it may be quite confusing if you did happen to see the sermon title. It says, the three things from 3 John. The three things, by the way, are truth, joy, and goodness. So weeks ago, I'm reading through, and that's what I'm underlining and highlighting in these themes. But nevertheless, by the time I was done this week with my preparations, I had four application points. A preaching professor I had used to say that sermon titles were invented by church secretaries to torture pastors. (laughs) Because nobody ever remembers a sermon title. But we got to have them. What are we going to print in the bulletin? And I say that in jest. I'm actually quite sure our admin staff could write a book about the things that their pastor does to torture church secretaries. (laughs) So anyway, the first point. What does it mean to walk in the truth as John commends Gaius? To walk means to move forward in a certain direction. To actively pursue a certain path. To persist and stay the course. When Esther and I were in the Adirondack Mountains a couple weeks ago, we were there for the YMCA Christian Mission Conference, and we attempted to summit Cook Mountain just outside Ticonderoga. The only trouble was, here coming from the flatlands of Minnesota, I had sorely underestimated what it means to go just 0.73 of a mile straight up a mountain. And we could have done it. Physically, we could have done it. But we had dinner reservations meeting another couple down in Ticonderoga. And I had only allotted 45 minutes for us to summit this mountain and casually walk back down. I will add that I had just, just polished off a small peanut butter cup sundae from the local ice cream shop. So that did not help my pace. So we didn't make it. And that's a bitter thing. You know, when you're like, it's, it's just up there, but we... We couldn't summit that mountain. We had to run down it, and I have never been out for dinner with another couple where I was so sweaty and disheveled looking in my life. There's an intentionality about walking in the truth. This is not something that Gaius stumbled into. He set course with Jesus, and by God's grace, he stayed the course. 
He stayed in God's word. He stayed in prayer. He stayed in Christian fellowship. He stayed in worship. He stayed through the ups and downs of his circumstances. And he stayed when others went a different path. So number one, walk in the truth. Then we get to the next paragraph. It's verses 5 to 8. Verse 5. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. Now, if we were to read the rest of this section here, we'd see a little more detail that shows us that Gaius was extending hospitality and inviting people into his home. And you have to take yourself back to a first century context that meant he was taking in traveling missionaries and pastors who were coming through town. That's how the gospel was spreading on foot across the Roman Empire. And so this is what they would do. And you'd see it in other letters in the New Testament. The Christ followers in a community, let's say us here, the Y Church, we would welcome in these travelers for a few days at a time and, and they would come and minister to us. Now Gaius had been exemplary in this ministry of hospitality, but perhaps, again just reading between the lines, perhaps he had faltered in this now. If you read the whole paragraph and the whole letter, it sounds like that's probably one of the reasons behind John writing this, this little letter. That's why he concludes the paragraph down in verse 8 by saying, We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. And you get out your highlighter. There's that word again, truth. And note the gentle correction. Do you see what I mean? We ought, therefore, to show hospitality, guys. And so here's our second takeaway. Number two. Love God's family and welcome the stranger. Now, hospitality may look a little different in our day. You, I'm guessing, are not housing itinerant ministers as they travel town to town. But hospitality is no less important in our time. In fact, I think it's probably in American culture at risk of falling by the wayside if we don't actively tend to it. Where we live, we have made the home into a kind of privatized castle where a household retreats from the demands of the outside world. I mean, that's how a lot of us perceive our homes. Aside from having family over on occasion, maybe to watch the Vikings game today, or perhaps your closest friends might come over, the American home remains largely closed off to guests and visitors. The front porch... I mean, who really designs much of a front porch anymore? It's been replaced by the back deck. The parlor was replaced by the mudroom. And the open door policy was replaced by the doorbell that can now see you and function as a security system. Hospitality is a dying art. And we don't have to wonder why, I was just looking at the 2022 data around this, loneliness is considered an epidemic in the United States and in Western Europe. And so there's beauty and power in being connected to a church family. And by that I mean not just attending Sunday service, but doing life with people. That's why we have Y groups. Because there are things that happen relationally in a smaller setting. Most of our Y groups meeting in homes... That simply we, we can't replicate here. 
And yet Gaius is not just commended for hosting people that he knows, but, but what does John elevate? He's welcoming brothers and sisters he doesn't. And one of the greatest testimonies of our faith is when you will care generously for another believer whom you don't actually know. The world sees that and is like, what kind of community is that? How do I get to be part of that? You know, I don't know a lot of people who have been argued into the kingdom of God by doctrinal propositions. But I do know a lot of people who have been compelled to know Christ because they saw true Christian love and hospitality. A spiritual family that exists that runs thicker than blood. So we have these opportunities here, whether it's, again, a dying art. Maybe you'll be inspired to invite over another couple for dinner. Not just meet at a restaurant, but invite them into your home. Or being part of a Y group. Or giving backpacks to kids at Friendship Academy like we got to do this fall. But we also have these opportunities abroad. And I think perhaps the best parallel to hosting traveling missionaries like they did is our global outreach ministry. And that can take so many forms. If we had more time, I would tell you about Judy's work, Judy, our scripture reader, her work with Feed My Starving Children. They just had their big fundraising event. If we had more time, we were going to do it next week. Do you remember we funded a conference in Ukraine to equip church leaders and give away theological libraries? We just got video in from the conference. Just happened last week in Ukraine, and they made a video to thank you expressly calling out the Y Church for funding their time in western Ukraine. But the one I'll cite today, before I really run out of time, is the opportunity we have with Rogi Village. Most of us will never meet our sponsor child this side of eternity. I think we've had two, three of us who have traveled to Rogi Village. Most of us will not meet our sponsor child. But one day, I imagine in heaven, you may be approached by somebody you do not know, all grown up. I don't know what that will all look like in heaven, but they'll say to you, you, you might not remember me, but you sponsored me to go to school in Ethiopia. I got to wear real clothes, a uniform that I wore proudly. I got medical care because of you, and it made all the difference. That's loving God's family, who you've never met, and welcoming the stranger. Next in our passage, but we've got a warning. You know, that always seems like we run into these in the letters. You know, this is like an uncomfortable part. And here we have it in verses 9 to 10. There's a certain man named Diotrephes who's stirring up trouble. Can people stir up trouble in the church? Yes. I once heard a preacher say that every church has one or two Diotrephes. I thought, really? I don't know that that's true. But it's worth considering, isn't it? Can church people stir up trouble? Yeah. And so John says, be on your guard. Verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. What a stinging description that is. A man who loves to be first. That is not somebody you want to do life with. If you've ever been part of a church in your past that is not spiritually healthy, this may well be the underlying cause. 
When you've got someone in leadership or a prominent family or a pastor can be a diatrophies, that's what you're dealing with. And when it's not called out or dealt with because of conflict avoidance or other reasons, then you have got an unhealthy church. Diotrephes was actively working against apostolic leadership, against John's leadership. And he's undermining the church's hospitality. And maybe if we put the dots together, that Gaius had faltered because he had come under his influence. Regardless, number three... Beware the self-centered rabble-rouser. You get a chance to use the word rabble-rouser, you got to take it. That's exactly what this guy is. Now, you and I are called to beware of this in the church, but I guarantee you that you are going to have a chance to practice it in other places too. And first and foremost, perhaps, we know we've got an election less than a month away. Beware the self-centered rabble-rouser. It does our nation no good, whether it's a candidate, a co-worker, or too much TV. You've got to be able to turn it off and walk away from it, to not get dragged down in the mud. And that goes for things well beyond an election. There are certain relationships where this word about diatrophies is for you because you've got to be crystal clear about what you're dealing with. When someone is not emotionally healthy or spiritually healthy, you don't want to give that fire any more oxygen than it already has. Beware the self-centered rabble-rouser. Let's move on then to the last paragraph, 11 and 12. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? I mean, you almost just pass over a sentence like that and not give it much thought. But because of our fallen sinful nature, it will inevitably be easier to imitate what is evil, aside from the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And I realize evil is a big, scary-sounding word. You know, we usually reserve that for, like, big world news people. And yet, if you go to a doctor, you want to hear the truth about your diagnosis, even if it's hard to hear. And the Bible holds up a mirror for us to the human condition, and it tells us what we are apart from Christ. Romans 7, Paul says, For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I'm in this mess, he says. And if that was the end of the story, we'd be in trouble. My three-year-old's favorite beginner's Bible story right now is the sneaky snake. We had to actually implement a rule. We could only read the sneaky snake every other night at bedtime so he'd hear some of the other stories because it's not the end of the story. And here's the obvious takeaway for this one. Imitate what is good. Students, I want to speak specifically to you for a moment. I love spending Wednesday nights with our students. Specifically, I get to be upstairs with high school. You have a choice as you walk the halls of your school and hang out with your friends to imitate what is good or to go along with the crowd. You're faced with that choice every day in school, on your teams, in your friendships. And I'll tell you, it will be so much easier to take the low road It'll be so much easier to be self-absorbed 
or bow to peer pressure or talk poorly of others. And where you're at right now, students, is training ground for the rest of your life because these are the exact kinds of choices that grown-ups have to walk in daily. It's just a different context. One of the verses that we read at baptism, and I'll see some of you at our baptism class after church today. One of the key verses that we read over a baptism is this one from Jesus. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father as in heaven. That's imitating what is good. Like fall trees reflecting off of a lake. It's a beautiful sight. And so in summary, here at the end of 3 John, here is what I think. Again, three things from 3 John. Forgive me for now giving you four. Here's the summary. Walk, love, beware, and imitate. Walk, love, beware, and imitate. And to me, that sounds like a pretty good summary of what Jesus has called us to do as his disciples and as God's children. So let me close by asking you these questions just to reflect on. You don't have to write them down. Just prayerfully bring these before the Lord. Will you choose to walk in the truth? Will you love your brothers and sisters in Christ and welcome the stranger? Will you be watchful for the one who stirs up dissent? And will you imitate what is good as a true reflection of Christ? Can I lead us into prayer? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you this morning for this littlest of books in the Bible that you placed into the canon of Scripture, Lord, for a reason. And I pray that reason would not be lost on us this morning. Lord, these are big and profound truths that you've given to us here to walk in truth, to love our Christian brothers and sisters, to be watchful and to imitate what is good. And I pray, Lord, there would be something here that your Holy Spirit would prompt in each one of us just to latch on to and to take into this week. Lord, we don't desire this morning to just attend a Sunday service and see each other next week, but that you would be doing a great work in each one of us, the youngest to the oldest in this room. Lord, we praise you this morning. We lift our voices. We worship you together. And we ask that you would have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.